from the new recording lair located deep beneath the Wine and Spirit Store in Ephrata, Pennsylvania. You're listening to the Masonic Light Podcast. Studio 665 presents Masonic Light Podcast. This show is recorded by Masons, for Masons, and is for entertainment purposes only. And please, no wagering. This podcast is not endorsed by any Grand Lodge, and the ridiculous ramblings of the hosts are their own. And now, here's your host. Welcome, everybody. We're here with the Sonic Lake Podcast, episode 126. Tonight, we're very Wait, well, uh, is that is that the real number or is that the estimated number? That's the one that you guys told me five seconds ago. <laughs> um, we have a great show, hopefully tonight. Um, uh, world-renowned author John Dickey is here tonight. And um, Jack's a big fan. So Jack's, if, if you haven't read his stuff, Jack's going to help us along. And... Um, so what we're going to do, guys, is just, let's just go around and see what everybody's been up to. So, uh, Tim, you're first because you're next on my screen. What have you been up to Masonically? Well, since we recorded our um, last episode, I participated in a Saturday event at the uh, Valley of Harrisburg um, where we had a stated meeting um, and then uh, excused ourselves to a fish fry uh, and then excused ourselves from that to a cigar smoker outside. Um, had great attendance at that. Uh, had a great time. Um, so that was great. Uh, Samuel C. Perkins Royal Arts Chapter conferred, um, or we were planning to confer a Mark Master degree. Uh, the candidate didn't show up, so uh, we just ended up having a meeting. Um, and then this past week, I was... Uh, Honored to speak at Robert Burns Lodge in Harrisburg. Um, I was their uh, featured speaker of the evening. Uh, and so uh, this, the, the program was on Freemasonry's Guide to Living as found in the Masonic Charges. So um, that's uh, pretty much what I've been up to for the past week or for the past couple of weeks, other than answering lots of questions from lodge secretaries about Grandview. But we won't go any further into that right now. Jack, what have you been up to? Um, well, a little uh, inconvenience called Lodge in the Woods. Oh yeah, I went to that too. That was my uh, that was my big event. Um, every two years, we uh, we hold an event at a local scout camp uh, because they have a the biggest roof in the neighborhood, um, and we had uh, I think total attendance was about one hundred and thirty. We had 170 tickets sold, um, so there was some leftover dinners. But it was uh, it was a really nice time. The grandmaster was uh, piped in with a pipe and drum, um, and uh, we we did it under roof this time. Ordinarily, we do it uh, outside around the camp fire circle, and th- uh, there was a threat of rain, so we just decided to stay under roof. And it was a good thing we did because. that threat became real that threat became real didn't last long but boy it came down hard for a couple minutes right while the the uh senior deacon was giving the closing charge for the meeting 
it, it didn't matter that he worked so hard to learn it. Um, you couldn't hear a word of it because it was no. raining so hard, but, <laughs> but he did a really nice job. And um, so, you know, it was a great event. Uh, we do it every two years. Um, this, I, I started it my year as Worshipful Master in 2009, and um, I, I've, I've done it now. This is the seventh. So I'm going to pass the torch along to anybody dumb enough to reach out. Um, or make eye contact. Yeah, eye contact is a big thing. Yeah. <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, that was it uh, pretty much. Um, always welcoming the new guys in Masonic education and stuff. So, Brother Josh, right. what's going on in uh, Lancaster? Uh, not really too much. Um, still got the, uh, the merger committee doing their work. Uh, I, too, went to Lodge of the Woods and helped out with that. Um, John, Brother Worshipful Master John Mertz did a great job. Uh, it was nice to see everybody. But other than that, not really a whole lot. Larry, what have you been up to? Uh, how's your health? Yeah. <laughs> funny you should ask that. <laughs> yeah, funny funny you should ask that. Yeah, I spent the afternoon at the doctor's office. The heart guy. But anyway, that's irrelevant. Uh, what's been going on? Let's see. Merger committee, merger committee, merger committee. It was a good iron merger committee. It's pretty much the same day in, day out. Um, like the real world. Brother brother John Dickey, have you done anything in, in the Masonic <laughs> world in the past couple of weeks? Well, uh, not being a brother, it'd be quite difficult for me to do anything Masonic. But I have, um, I'm preparing for the launch of my book in Italy, um, and I had a public debate uh, with uh, a guy, you'd call him a, a district attorney, I suppose, the equivalent in Italy, sort of prosecutor who's involved in a very big and very important case trying to establish links between the Freemasons and the Mafia in Calabria. Uh, very interesting story. I talk about it a little bit in the book. The uh, uh, case seems to have deflated somewhat. Um, and I had some, I had a bit of a chat with the Grand Master of the Grand Orient of Italy, who was interested in a newspaper article I'd written and who uh, said he was going to read the book as, as soon as it came out in Italy, and with a very good friend who is in the other major uh, uh, obedience, as they call them in Italy, the Grand Lodge of Italy, who uh, is a woman, Joy Avantaggiato, her name is. Uh, the, you will have gathered that the Grand Lodge of Italy is, uh, uh, admits women, mixed lodge meetings and so on. Uh, and she, we were talking about how we could try and get uh, the Masonic world in Italy talking about my book. So those were the conversations. Very cool. My grandfather's or grandmother's from Calabria, so I need maybe I need oh, to Oh, interesting. Wow. Whereabouts? I, I am not sure. I know more about my grandfather's side, and I, I yeah. saw the same house in Santomero, um, Abruzzi. But okay. Yeah. My, they just used to call my grandmother's side a bunch of hillbillies and <laughs> like hard headed because they're from like, I don't yeah. know, a rougher part of the country. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot of hills in Calabria. It's pretty much all hills. So, uh, 
uh, yeah, be interested to find out where where they're from. I mean, a lot of a lot of Calabrians came over for sort of mining and stuff in the beginning of the twentieth century um, in Pennsylvania. Is that is that where your folks came from? Um, yeah, I mean, my family all came over here in the nineteen twenties. Um, I mean, I guess Italy had to be really rough. And then you come over here and you hit the Great Depression. So they had some real bad luck there. Mm. But, yeah, I don't know. My grandfather was a shoemaker until uh, then he started getting into his own business. At one point, he owned a very big national trucking company called Mushroom Transportation. These all orange trucks, which are now, I forget what company it is now, but you see it's mm. much bigger now. And there's if you see all orange tractor trailers on the road, that used to be my grandfather's company. Wow. Mm. Wow. So me, um, I have the Pennsylvania Grotto Association, PGA Fall, uh, whatever you want to call it, in October. <laughs> I'm the president. I'm the president of Pennsylvania. That's what I call it. Uh, October 15, 16, 17. So please come on out for that. We're going to be putting on the another bogus degree called the Order of Golden Leaf and Barley. So if you can figure that out, we're going to smoke cigars and drink whiskey. Um, it's very important that we have a degree to support this activity. <laughs> yes. And really, that's about it. I've been kind of laying low, um, running back and forth, doctor's appointments. And then I had a spare moment. So the Doberman Rescue told me to go get this dog. Um, there was a puppy mill in Louisiana, so southern United States, I don't know the total amount of dogs that they rescued, but the breed that I deal with, Dobermans, they were 70 Dobermans pulled out of this puppy mill. Wow. I think the total was 400 dogs. Mm. And this little girl, I, I would be embarrassed. If I, if I took her for a walk or to a pet store, people would call the police because they think she's, she's all skin and bones. But she's been over here for two months and they have actually put weight on her. So my job is to try and get her to act. Was like she a hurricane dog. rescue? Is that a hurricane rescue thing, Pete, or, uh, just the hur yeah, the hur well, the hurricane was the impetus of this, but okay. these people were still not very good pet people. Um, like, I Got mean, it. you, you'll see a kennel that should be one dog and there's five big dogs in it. You know, and this little girl, she's less than 18 months old and she's already had two litters of puppies. Wow. So, you know, so she's happy to be here playing with my two big idiots. Um, but that's that's it. So uh, we'll take a quick break. We're going to come back and Jack's going to lead our discussion with uh, author John Dickey. Why choose George J. Grove & Sons for your next home improvement project? At George J. Grove & Sons, we've built our reputation on quality and trust for more than 50 years. For planning to materials to installation, George J. Grove promises a home improvement experience second to none. Whether your goal is reducing energy costs, decreasing maintenance, updating curb appeal, or simply increasing the value of your home, the George J. Grove team will recommend and provide solutions that stand the test of time. Call 717-393-0859 for an estimate or visit us at georgejgrove.com. 
And we're back. And uh, we have with us tonight um, a, a guest that I'm very excited about, uh, John Dickey. Uh, John wrote a uh, recently uh, wrote, well, what, two years ago, John? Was it released? Uh, no, last year. Last year. Last a year, year ago. Yeah. Um, so it's called it's called simply The Craft. Uh, but the subtitle, I think, really tells it all. How the Freemasons made the modern world. And a lot of times you don't get the subtitle when you talk about a book. But I think that's the more important aspect of this um, and, and um, what caught my eye. So, uh, John, why, uh, welcome to the show. And tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, how does an Italian scholar write a book about the, um, the English Freemasons? Okay. Um, my name's John Diggy. It's very, very nice to be here. Uh, thank you for the invitation. Well, it's not over yet. Give it time. Yeah, yeah. We'll come back to that um, at the end of the show. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, let me think. Okay. My name is John Dickey. I'm Professor of Italian Studies at University College London. Uh, I'm a historian by profession. Um, and... Yeah, it is quite a long route, it would seem, for somebody who's a non-Mason, although my grandfather was a Mason, into writing, you know, spending five years of their life researching and writing a book which isn't just about English Freemasonry by any means. Oh, true. true. I mean, it travels the world. Uh, you know, there are many chapters, chapters set in the United States, in Italy, in India, in France, in Germany, in Spain, episodes in Australia and various other parts of the world too. Um, so uh, really the story, I mean, it's got a funny story in a way. I, my, claim to fame as a historian really is as a historian of Italian organized crime. I'm a historian of the mafia. And um, good, a good few years ago now, uh, six, seven years ago, uh, they arrested a mafia boss, a Sicilian mafia boss on the run uh, in London. And he'd been living, and this never happens, you know. We'd been living, he'd been living under an assumed name for God knows how long, nearly 20 years, um, as a kind of limousine driver between the centre of London and Heathrow Airport in this very anonymous suburb of London called Uxbridge. And they arrested him on um, pretty much in the middle of August when nobody's around, there's no news, you know, Parliament is empty, nothing is happening. They well, they're call all it the, in Italy on, on holiday. Yeah, they're all in Italy on holiday. They call it they call it the silly season, okay? Right. So it was prime silly season when they're desperate for news. And, of course, all the media leapt on this big time, you know, the huge story. So I spent two days camped out in every news, stu news studio and radio station in London doing the rounds. And, you know, what people would ask is, you know, what is the mafia? And I reply, my standard reply is echoing the words of members of the Sicilian mafia who've turned state's evidence. They will say, well, it's like a Freemasonry for criminals. Oh, so <laughs> now... So I can, I can, that's a definition I can defend to some extent. We could talk about that, but clearly your reaction was the, the, the reaction shared by the then 
head of communications of the United Grand Lodge of England, very nice it's, guy, it's sadly, now departed, called Mike Baker. It, it, it's the same reaction. It's the same reaction I had when I got to the uh, Lucifer section of Morals and Dogma. Just, <laughs> right. Oh, oh, God, no! Did you really have to? No, no. There's a better way to say. It. Wow, you do, you're heroic getting that far into Morals and Dogma, I have to say. But anyway, the um, the, uh, so anyway, the end of the day, I get back home and I find an email in my inbox from the United Grand Lodge of England saying. A uh, number of members have been expressing concern. Uh, would you like to come in for a chat? Which, of course, I did. I leapt at the chance, and I got the tour of the museum and the, the you know discussion and everything with their resident archivist, John Hamill, and historian, and so on. And it was obviously cleared up very quickly because, you know, but that's what first made me think, well, hang on, you know, I think there's a book here. I knew I, I wasn't starting from scratch on Freemasonry. I knew a fair bit about the history of Freemasonry in Italy already, but I wanted to make it, you know, much more international book. Let me defend that definition before I get bombarded <laughs> with more emails by your uh, listeners. Okay, Pete's got friends that could get, you know, they they could. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I get seriously angry. You know, either the, media, the, yeah. the, the the mafia or the or, or the Freemasons get very very angry about this. Um, but yeah, it's an explanation used by mafiosi themselves, and it has a certain amount of truth to it in two ways. Obviously, uh, Freemasonry and the Mafia have very, very different value systems, shall we say. But as a template for an organisation, they're really quite similar mm-hmm. in the sense that as, a, as a, a member of the Sicilian Mafia, I'm talking strictly in Sicilian terms here rather than the American sister organisation, you join a family and a family is a metaphor. It's not a, it, it, you know, they're not all related by any means. In fact, the Sicilian Mafia has a rule that you can't have more than two members of the same family in the same family with a capital F. It's a metaphor for a cell of the organization, which takes the name from the place where it's based. Okay. Like you might join a local lodge. But then, and that lodge has its hierarchy, its boss, its, you know, officers and so on. But then joining that lodge also gives you credentials that gives you access to a much wider network. Yeah. And that membership comes through rituals, through imbibing stories and lessons, through taking bloodthirsty oaths. (laughs) um, And... The similarity is is undeniable, I think, in in formal terms, but it's also not coincidental. And this is one of the stories I tell in my book, because in the early 19th century, in the sort of revolutionary cauldron of southern Italy, the kind of circumstances that led to Italy becoming a united country in 1860, Freemasonry was very politicised. It gave birth to quasi-Masonic secret societies that were deeply involved in revolutionary politics, trying Mm. to 
overthrow the absolutist regimes and create a united Italy. And if you're going to make a revolution, you need you need men of violence. And they recruited men of violence. And those men of violence, after Italian unification, having learnt how to organise themselves as a secret society, coalesced into the mafia. So we call them past masters now. <laughs> Just saying. Uh, yeah, 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 exactly. So um, so you launched into this. Um, you, you, your book... Um, is more than just about that aspect of it. it it's sure, really, of course, yeah. really encompassing book of the history of Freemasonry, its, its foundations, uh, pre-Grand Lodge, uh, Grand Lodge, post-Grand Lodge, and, and, and ancient... I mean, if there's, a, if there's a Masonic topic that you're curious about um, that's commonly talked about, it's probably in this book, uh, The Morgan Affair... Uh, P2, which we really don't like to talk about at all. Um, <laughs> and and um, uh, just just the whole of it. It's it, I don't know. I'm going to I'm going to draw Larry in because he's in a coma right now. You, uh, if I may, you're saying you're, you're making look, Larry's probably in a coma because you're making it sound like an encyclopedia, <laughs> which it isn't. Right? No, <laughs> no, 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 it's, it's a book not. full of stories, you know, oh, it's, yeah. uh, it, it yeah. reads like a novel almost mm. um, a, a, about the subject of Freemasonry, which is really cool. And mm. um, Larry, your, your thoughts when you first read it. Let, let's hear you. Well, when I first read it, I was totally, totally enchanted with your background and your history of the real, the real beginnings of Freemasonry coming from Scotland. And I have believed that for 30, 40 years that we came there before, uh, before the United, before the English uh, lodges were opening up. And, and I knew that in the, in the uh, late 1500s, uh, that was happening. And historically, there was so much there. And, and I thought the way you treated that was excellent. I was excited about that. I really, and I enjoyed that part of it. Um, then as I continued to read, I was totally fascinated by the Carbonara. And that um, almost similar affiliation between Freemasonry, not that they were, or they could have been, who knows, really. So, so, about, so let's, about. let's talk about what he was talking about. Let's go to that Italian, uh, the Carbonara uh, or, or uh, coal miners. Carbonara, uh, just to yeah. clarify, is a pasta dish that has nothing to do with Freemasonry. Car it's the Carbonari who are they? Carbonari, uh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, we can talk. <laughs> I, listen, I can talk Carbonara till the cows come home, but because uh, um, I also wrote a history of Italian food. But I think we better. Stick on message. <laughs> I, I, I was oh, getting, I, I was getting extremely confused because the Italian state police are the what the carabinieri. carabinieri. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, and here we go with the carbonara, the sauce, and with the carbonari. <laughs> it's okay, Larry. You'll be okay. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. But it was, it was great. It was really looking. So, so that's really nice of you to say. But well, let's use let's use Larry's introduction of of that topic um, back into your transitioning from the Italian Masonic connection uh, yeah. to the broader uh, content of the book. Because I, I I don't want to I don't want to just focus on any 
singular aspect of the book. Let's let's kind of there's a whole bunch of stuff in here to talk about. Yeah. So what, tell, tell us wow. about that. I mean, um, I know Larry, it sounded like Larry was building up to a lovely big butt uh, with some criticisms <laughs> to follow, which well, I'm really, really interested. I'm really interested to hear. Larry, Jack I, for know, taking the wind there, there have that been one. criticisms of the book in the States, and I'm really looking forward to kind of engaging with those. Uh, but let's deal with the Carbonari. I mean, what happened in Italy um, was a massive injection of politics of various kinds into the Masonic tradition. First of all, the Catholic Church hates Freemasonry, okay? Freemasons are uh, Satanists. They're excommunicated for the first time in 1738, as many of you will know already. And in the 19th century, everything goes wrong for the Catholic Church. You know, you get the French Revolution, you get the peasants leaving there, you know, which is, is seems to them a kind of godless overthrowing of the divine order. You, you know, eventually the Pope loses his power on earth and is confined to the Vatican. Everything goes wrong. And the Church blames the Freemasons for everything. And they've, they, they hate the Masons. At the same time, Napoleon basically takes over the Freemasons and uses them as part of his regime. These new men who associated with the Masonic state, the new generals, you know, Napoleon creates career avenues for ambitious men and uses Masonic lodges as ways of binding them to the regime. It's, it's almost a, a, like a sort of, uh, part of Napoleonic ideology. And that gets spread to Italy. And between those two forces and the restlessness of Italy in the early 19th century, which has a revolution every few years, you know, you can set your clock by the revolutions in Italy in the, in the early 19th century. Freemasonry gets caught up in that because it's one of the few places where you can do politics where you have the freedom to do politics in an absolutist regime, which is what uh, the various Italian states of the period were. So did they really... And, that, and, and, then, and, and that many Masonic lodges give birth, have as sort of uh, sidecars, these, these things called the Carbonari, who are the charcoal burners, we, easier to refer them refer to them like that. They, we don't get them confused with pasta dishes or policemen. <laughs> and they are a rev an avowedly revolutionary secret society that, again, are structured very, very like the Freemasons with oaths and lodges and, and that sort of thing, who are dedicated to the cause of overthrowing the powers that be and creating a united Italy. And things get very violent, very corrupt, very tied up with spies and gangsters. I mean, it's a story that just uh, turns in on itself so many times. Crazy. And at one point, the authorities in Naples try to use 
another secret society to fight the secret societies that are growing up all around them. And at some point, one guy gives up and says, look, this is a, a collective mania, this secret society mania that has taken over Southern Italian society. Um, and that's this weird uh, cauldron that, that the mafia eventually uh, emerges from. So uh, you you called me out for expressing your your book as a, an encyclopedia, and certainly it's mm. not. Um, and I, I found it because I read a review of it, and I won't mention the reviewer, but I read a review of it, and it was... The, it was absolutely scathing review uh, of the book, and and I said, "Oh well, I got to read that because you know." Okay, I'm glad it worked. That <laughs> That's about WC Fields there. And- oh my <laughs> goodness! I, so I uh, so I, I I got it and I read it and I, I you know and I I told you before off off I think we were emailing back and forth, but. I kind of I kind of understand where the aggravation came from in a couple of different aspects, uh, but but talk uh, talk a little bit about how the book was received by Masonic scholars versus Masons. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, various historian professional historians have reviewed the book in the press, uh, and they've been very very kind about it. Um, you know, in that sense that they have you know, in, in journals and newspapers in Europe, but not just, you know, in, in, I have to say in by and large in Masonic circles in, uh, not just in Britain, but in Germany, in Belgium, you know, I've been invited next spring to the sort of annual general meeting of, of, uh, uh, Belgian Freemasons to give a talk about, you know, my views on the future of Freemasonry. I've twice been invited to, uh, you know, lecture by the United Grand Lodge of England, sort of nationally broadcast podcasts uh, by them. There are copies of my book piled high in the bookshop in the in Freemasons Hall in, in Covent Garden, the, the, the HQ of English uh, Freemasonry worldwide. Um, so I've actually been amazed and delighted at the amount of dialogue that I've been able to have with Masons through this book, uh, you know, not, not by no means always uncritical, but certainly a dialogue. Right. Uh, I don't think anybody's dismissed it as a, you know, uh, an anti-Masonic uh, hatchet job. You know, I went into this book wanting to have a discussion. And, um, you know, if I can be serious for a moment, you know, I, I've sat down with Freemasons from all over the world now, over the course of writing this book. And one thing I noticed is you can't, if you know, and I very simply ask, you know, what does Freemasonry mean to you? And it really doesn't take very long before the eyes start to moisten and people give you a sense of, something really, really powerful in their, in, you know, giving a shape to their lives and their, shaping their friendships and their connections and supporting them through things like COVID. And, and, you know, you can't encounter that and be flippant 
about Freemasonry and or not try to explain it, the power of its attractions and so on and so forth. But a historian, hey, I also have to see uh, the other sides of it, try and set it in context. And frankly, I also have to try and explain it to people like me, in a sense, who aren't Freemasons, whose starting point is, those guys are completely weird. What on earth is going on there? Yeah, right. and you've got to you've got to start there. Um, so if that uh, if you're going to bring people along, you've got to start there. So that's the uh, you know uh, that's the approach. Um, I hope the book has some funny bits in it. Whether certainly uh, a few people found a lot of it quite funny. I mean, I thought that. The, the Taxel hoax story is crazy. You killed me. Absolutely, you killed absolutely me crazy. I'm, I'm reading the whole thing and I'm thinking to my, I'm thinking to myself, you know, you have that second brain in your head that's reading mm-hmm. along with you. And I'm reading this and I'm thinking to myself, come on, this is impossible. How can he be saying this? And then you get to the end of this, of the section and it's like, yeah, right. Who could believe this? <laughs> yeah. And I just like, God, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the, the, uh, the reason I was doing that as a historian is to try and give people a sense of why he was believed for so long. You know, 12 years he went on and on and this right. stuff and this slowly escalating craziness with, you know, much of the Catholic Church, much, much of Catholic public opinion, and quite a few interested bystanders going with him. Um, and, and you know, so you to to really sense that and not just laugh it off the table. Right. You ha- you have to tell the story in I, I think in the way I told it with the yeah. reveal at the end. You know. Yeah, I I swallowed the hook. All right, let's take a quick break. <laughs> That's <I> great. Think- <laughs> I think uh, my brains are exploding here. Um, Let's take a quick break. Uh, We'll talk to the people that make this possible, including our Patreons, Tim. Yes. What? Imagine that. Imagine that. We'll talk about our Patreons when we come back. At the historic Smithton Inn of Ephrata, Pennsylvania, we're pleased to serve the latest creations from Weathered Vineyard Winery, along with spirits from Thistle Finch Distillery in Lancaster. All to be experienced in the tasting room of a beautifully restored 18th century bed and breakfast. Cigars by DNS Cigar are available for your enjoyment in the courtyard. The historic Smithton Inn is convenient to Lancaster County's most interesting attractions. Just minutes from the Ephrata Cloister and the Green Dragon Farmer's Market. And a short drive can get you to charming Lidditz, thriving downtown Lancaster, as well as Hershey, Bird in Hand, and Intercourse. Or Valley Forge. Gettysburg. Whether you're looking for a romantic getaway or an active vacation full of sightseeing and attractions, the historic Smithton Inn will be a welcoming oasis from everyday life, one that you'll want to visit again and again. Stop in and visit at 900 West Main Street in Ephrata, Pennsylvania, or check out our website at historicsmithtoninn.com, or simply call us at 717-733-6000. Nine four. Just ask for Passmaster Dave. And we're back. Uh, 
good it is. So we, we have so much fun. We really ought to record our breaks and uh, do an outtakes at the end or something. But uh, I think we in any case, uh, as Jack said, just before we went to break, uh, this uh, podcast lives because of you, our listeners, and especially because of the generous giving of our Patreons. Um, our patrons on Patreon. We're going to get that right one of these days. Um, and for as little as $1 a month. $1. Just like 275,000 lira. There you go. <laughs> you can be a supporter of this podcast. We'll also take uh, higher levels uh, of uh, patronage uh, on uh, patreon.com. Go to patreon.com slash Masonic Light Podcast uh, and make your contribution there. Uh, and so uh, we also we discovered during the break uh, that uh, Larry wants to share his butt. <laughs> oh, oh, seriously! Uh, in the middle of the uh, in the middle of the uh, last segment, uh, Larry was uh, going on with something, and there was an anticipated butt something coming, and so Larry didn't get to share that. Larry, you want to share your butt? <laughs> Yeah, uh, um, our, our guest, John Dickey, world-famous author, uh, we were talking about the book itself and some of the things that I really enjoyed about it, and I was getting to the point where I was going to do but, and then Jack came in and took it away from me, and actually, if I told you I forgot what the but was, would you believe that? <laughs> Actually, no, it was John. The, the book was fantastic. It was uh, actually I went to a goose and gridiron breakfast and one of the brothers, uh, Brian Hill, actually said, have you read the craft? I said, no, I, I did not. What is it? He told me about it. He just happened to have the hardcover edition in his hand and he gave it to me to read. Well, then I next thing you know, I talked to Jack, the book club, and it kind of snowballed from there. Uh well, Jack, I gave Jack my opinion of the book, and for the most part, it was pretty solid. It was good. There were some areas that I thought I, it was hard for me to read, only because when we talked about World War II and the concentration camp, that's a hard one for me. It, it always has been. It's a difficult read. Uh, but when it came to the end of the book, here comes the but. <laughs> Talking about <clears throat> Freemasonry is, is losing people. Things are happening to the craft. It's shrinking. I'm not saying it's 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 shrinking and going out of business. That, that it will not do. But there are vast changes happening in Freemasonry throughout the world. But you came up with some recommendations. And one of the and, and some of them were good. But there was one that was just some had to do with maybe if Freemasonry would allow women to join. And that's the way I took it. And, and, and really, it's, it's, it's not a bad idea. But one of the things I remembered was I was a member of Lions Club International. When we went through the debate of having women join the club and we decided it was a good idea because we can grow and we can be stronger and better. Well, here we are 25, 30 years later, we haven't grown, we haven't been stronger as a lion, as a rotary. So it really, those ideals that we thought we might get 
and merging with women just didn't happen. So that was one of my critiques. And again, it was a small one, but. It- yeah, um, no, I mean, that's a that's an absolutely ginormous. But if I may say, <laughs> um, I don't have a dog in this fight, I have to say, you know, I'm not a Freemason, but I get asked. And I was more interested in seeing, you know, I made a, I made the point by looking at the story of uh, the extraordinary story of how the Grand Orient of France decided after 250 years to admit women. And it was a man who uh, changed sex at uh, the operation to uh, become his true female self, who uh, was already... Uh, a Freemason of the Grand Orient, who convinced the Grand Orient to change its mind and admit women. And it was a fascinating story. She's a fascinating person to meet. Really, really thoughtful, smart uh, Freemason uh, with a great sense of Freemasonry's place in French life. And um, the... The fascinating thing about it was that she said, look, it is what what the the lesson, what she was saying, it isn't just about admitting women, because even if you admit women, there is a glass ceiling. There is a whole history of Freemasonry being a male association that isn't going to make life easy for women once they join. Yeah, you can't just open the doors and expect everything to be fine in that way right the other part of the problem is of course that hey listen uh, the the reason why a lot of freemasons are freemasons is because they like the fact that it's an oil all male brotherhood so there isn't there's you know i don't as i said i don't have any skin in the game that there are pros and cons of either side but you know, my, if I, if you were to ask me in my advice, I think you you know ultimately you're going to have no choice as uh, uh, as to whether to you know but about embracing this change. The the book though the the way the book reads, or at least the way I read the book, you don't really state that as a proposition. No, exactly. You, yeah, you, you kind of leave it there as like, hey, you know, you kind of screwed up with you know African American people. Maybe you want to take another look at this female thing. And, and you know, that's just kind of how you leave it. And I like that about it because, like, like Freemasonry, you know, everything is symbols and perception. Uh, so, it, you know, two, dip, two people can read that same section and, and come away from your book with two completely different ideas about mm. Yeah, that, that's really kind of you to say that. Yeah, I didn't want to, you know, I wanted to tell the stories and the lap, you know, get people thinking uh, and discussing about it. I suppose, and yeah, going and, and weird because yeah. because of my comments, John. Don't think I'm mm. person as an individual that I'm against something like that. I have two daughters, and I know the things that they go through and went through to become successful. Larry, you mm. misogynist pig. That's well, no, 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 far, far, far from it. Far from it. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm saying it's it's something that, and and I'm glad you brought it out in the book because it's something that we will be talking about. Sure. Really. And you know, I, I would love to be a fly on the wall at at at, at 
the meeting of the Masons who told Prince Hall no in heaven, if they're there, mm. assuming they're there, mm. right? Just like, really, guys? Did, really? You know, and, and that's kind of how you write. I mean, I mean, it's a fun, it's a, it's a yeah. very readable conversational style. And that's, uh, that's rare for something as scholastic as this is without being a, a, yeah. a, a sort of. I mean, if I wanna, wanted to wade in and start wagging my finger at Freemasons and saying, listen, you're doing it all wrong. <laughs> um, then the one thing I really would give them a damn good finger wagging about is writing history. You know, there are ways you've got to write your history better because, you know, Wait, there's right a, with a w? that said, that said, right, right, right with a W or just, yeah, right, right. Yeah. Because so we have to, rewrite I mean, that said, you know, there are some very, very, you know, really very, very good Masonic historians out there. Um, and you know, this Italy has many, many professional historians who are Freemasons who are really interesting. Um, but that said, the general trend is in Masonic history is to tell stories that say, "Hey, aren't we lovely? And don't people misunderstand us?" And you know, it, it's all about. It's a team-building exercise. It's not an exercise in research and storytelling. Even when it is about the mind, you know, studying, doing genuine research into the minutiae, the, the context is that we're doing this because this is precious and really worthwhile. And I think you have to tell us, A, tell stories that are going to put bums on seats and tell stories that do the really hard work of writing history, which is the context, which is, you know, not picking out Freemasons here and there from history, but actually putting it in a bigger picture and asking some harder questions. And that way I think you get, you have a lot more fun in your stories. Your stories become more readable to the outside world yeah, they're going to include dark as well as light, but you know we might all rub along a bit better and have more fun along the way as a result. Um, so there, my finger has been wagged. Wagged. We've been wagged. I, I right, think the butt big... has been addressed and the finger has been wagged. The finger has wagged the butt. Yes. The um, that's one of the things I think our show tries to do is there's so many people out there talking about. Freemasonry as if it's this high and mighty esoteric thing. And they'll always mention, you know, famous Freemasons like in America, George Washington or Voltaire or somebody like that. But, you know, they were kind of busy. How often did they actually, these guys actually attend lodge? So, you know, in America, I would say 95% of the Masons are guy, regular guys, any line of work that just go and want to talk to their friends. And I think if we painted that more, more in that context, it would help us in recruiting. Um, it would also probably put some people at ease who, who think that, oh, well, you know, my lodge isn't good enough because we just hang out and, you know, we just help each other out financially or do this or that. But we're not writing great books or anything. Like, I don't know. Mm. 
Well, well, we used to. Some we, of us. We did. used to write great books. We used to own huge industries. We used to um, we used to control politics. We used to control religion. We used to, I mean, free, and by we, I mean Freemasonry as a whole. Um, but we don't really anymore. I mean, we, we, you know, yeah, I mean, we're all good guys and that's great. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think not- even the past, I think you're right. Um, you know, that, uh, Pete, this, this, um, the Freemasonry all along has loved, um, having, recruiting posters with the Churchills and the Washingtons and the Garibaldis and people on. Uh, But you're absolutely right. They were too damn busy to, but, you know, Churchill particularly, I'm not even sure he he took the third degree, um, but that hasn't stopped them uh, using him as a, as a sort of recruiting sergeant. And, you know, what, like, likewise, Washington, the idea that, you know, he he made you know the, during the American Wars of Independence was somehow a Masonic project is largely an invention of nineteenth-century Freemasons when in Freemasonry's golden age, when they were just desperately trying to amp up Freemasonry's role in in the American Revolution and the Wars of Independence and so on and so forth, and amp up the figure of. Uh, George Washington. You know that if you go to the George Washington National uh, Monument um, uh, uh, in Virginia, most of the stuff in there is—I mean, it's fascinating—but it's evidence of that later cult of George Washington, rather than you know M- Washington's own life as a as a Freemason. Very similar things could be said about Garibaldi. The, the 19th century, you know, when Freemasonry had been banned by the church for much of the early 19th century, Italian unification happens, lodges are suddenly freed, they can open up, and they start to make a big deal out of Garibaldi and make, claim that they had a much bigger role in the unification of Italy than they really did. So if you go, if you go back to when those high characters, we'll call them just for a second, if you go back to the point in their lives where they actually affiliated with Freemasonry, what they were finding, I think, is a, a philosophical um, uh, bubble that, that they could exist in um, philosophically, patriotically, revolutionarily. Uh, they had this, this, this umbrella of secrecy that they, could, that they could exist under and flesh out these ideas. And that I think that I think that the fact that they were Freemasons is important because they at least had an opportunity to do that. A lot of revolutionaries don't get a chance to re- to express that publicly because you know you get killed, right? Mm. It's, it's it's interesting that as we're we're talking with John here, I started reading a book. It's titled "Hero of Two Worlds" by Mike Duncan, and it's the history of Lafayette. And when he was 18 years old, he was taken aside and brought into a lodge, a Masonic Freemason lodge in, uh, in France. He and two other people who were also instrumental in the French Revolution as well as had their hand in the American Revolution. And the author attributed a lot of that to Freemasonry, putting in the ideals of a Republican, uh, Republican thought 
and it goes hand in hand with what you've been writing and you've been talking about tonight, John. Right. It does have great influence in the past. Uh, very important. Well, you know, what I'm trying to say is that both Freemasons and anti-Freemasons have tended to exaggerate the power of Freemasonry in the past for their own interests. You know, um, the Italian case is very interesting. Again, post-unification Italy, you know, you have, I forget how many, it's about 11 Masonic prime ministers. There's a lot, you know, f uh, Masonic lodges act as not political parties, but kind of debating societies. And it's where you go if you're a politician to kind of get your ideas across. Remember, Italy wasn't a democracy at this stage. You had a very restricted electorate. But they couldn't agree with very much, apart from the fact that they hated the Catholic Church, you know, Freemasons in this period. But what happened later is that people like Mussolini, the fascist dictator, identified Freemasonry with that old liberal regime that he didn't like, and therefore exaggerated the power of Freemasonry, that it, the power that it had over politics and over the institutions, for his own aims. Because, you know, his first act as a dictator was to ban Freemasonry because that made him look like the enemy of the old elite, the old corrupt elite. So, um, you know, and by the same tokens, Freemasons themselves would use it as a kind of recruiting tool. You know, this is how powerful we are and so on and so forth. So it becomes a kind of game where nobody has a, a stake in really stepping, setting back and saying, well, hang on, really, come on, you know. <laughs> um, John, John as, the, uh, as the only Italian here, I'm going to try to get us back to um, the topic that we've derailed from about right. uh, the, the the Freemasons and, and the Mafia. And, yeah. <laughs> and in fact, I just signed up to go see a, um, or hear a lecture in a couple weeks. And it's all about, um, well, what, what happened in 1982 about mm. a bank being hanged from a bridge? That's what this whole... Yeah. Black Friar and Rich. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So was that the first time that Freemasonry had really reared its head in Italy in a while, in a bad way? Mm. Or that confused everything with the Catholic Okay, Church? we need we need to take it. Uh, funnily enough, if you look on my website, uh, net. Um, actually, it's not my website. It's on my YouTube channel. There's um, some videos. Um, <laughs> I, I shot in London, and one of them is the scene where that guy, the banker, Roberto, Roberto Calvi, who was a member of the P2 Masonic Lodge, was found hanging by his neck on uh, Blackfriars Bridge. And it's a murky story. Mm. Um, and it isn't directly associated with the mafia. Um, it's... Although it, it's thought that people like Calvi and another banker who was in the P2 Lodge were laundering money. In fact, they definitely were. A guy called Sindona was laundering money, drug money for the Sicilian Mafia, among other nefarious activities. 
But there's a more illustrative case, this P2 Masonic Lodge. It was a Masonic Lodge. It was part of the Grand Orient of Italy. It has a long history that goes back to the 19th century. And it's a story that I tell how, how this catastrophe overcame um, the Grand Lodge of Italy uh, because of its dreams of returning to the days when it was really powerful or when it thought it was really powerful in the late 19th century. But there's a there's a more in a way a more interesting case going on that is more directly links the mafia and the Freemasons, and this is what I was having this debate about in Italy uh, with a prosecutor uh, in front at this festival um, uh, uh, in Calabria, and basically there's this huge trial. It's gone on for years which is based, the two key pieces of evidence, a phone tap in which a mafia boss, a very important mafia boss, said the Andrangheta doesn't exist anymore. The Andrangheta is the name of the Calabrian mafia, okay, much more powerful than Cosa Nostra now. The Andrangheta doesn't exist anymore. There's Freemasonry. It's Freemasonry that runs everything. Okay, And if you're a prosecutor, an anti-mafia prosecutor, you're going, what? Second, second thing is statements by one of the, four, the former um, grandmaster of the Grand Orient of Italy who testified that he had been told by somebody now dead that almost all of the Masonic lodges Grand Orient Masonic lodges in Calabria were run had been taken over by the mafia by the Andrangheta. Now, at the end of several years of trial, it's hectic stuff. We get to two findings: one, that this Grand Master guy didn't know what the hell he was talking about, and it was hearsay, and somebody was probably just pulling his chain because there was nothing, no sense that you know this wholesale takeover of Freemasonry by the Andrangheta. And the, the second thing is that the mafia boss who said the Freemasons had taken over everything was talking in metaphors. It's a metaphor. Like most people in Italy, masonry is a metaphor. It means it's a dirty lobby. You know, it's a clique. The good old boys. Yeah. It's good old boys. It's a, it's a little elite who run things from behind the scenes. And what he meant was actually a particular power group within the Andrangheta who'd taken over. Okay. A kind of, <clears throat> who were members of the mafia like everybody else. And they weren't Freemasons. One of them was. Um, had taken it. And it was a metaphor. And because of this metaphor, We've had books written about, you know, the Masons are taking over and the Masons and the Mafia and Italy's standing parliamentary commission of inquiry into the Mafia hauled in the grant, you know, leaders of, of Italian Freemasonry and say, we want to confiscate your membership list because we've got it, you know, well, who are you hiding? What's going on? Crazy, crazy stuff. That said... In the chaotic panorama, I mean, Italy, literally, you get people getting around a table at dinner and saying, hey, let's set up a Masonic Lodge. You know, get on the internet, plagiarize some rituals and stuff, 
and we're Masons for whatever reason you want. There's a kind of anarchy there. And, um, you know, some of that Masonic activity is certainly dodgy. Um, Really dodgy. You know, you have in America with some of the, the these lodges. I mean, Prince Hall Freemasonry is particularly badly affected by this. Some of them are just, you know, rip-off schemes, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, these illegitimate forms of, of, of Prince Hall Freemasonry. Right. Spurious versions. In, 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 it, in Italy, some of them are connected to organised crime. Um, <clears throat> but that's very, very different from this kind of great alliance between the Freemasons and the Mafia that they'd started off uh, imagining. So it's a crazy story, yet another story of the kind of misunderstandings and weirdness that Freemasonry has given rise to throughout its history. This, this didn't start yesterday. Well, I would just like to say that I would very much like to believe that the leaders of Freemasonry could all get together and decide something because, you know, there is no taking over the world. They, they can't decide on who to admit and who not to admit. So they can't agree to not yeah. have events on the same day. So that <laughs> those live in between, we can't go to both. Yeah, There's only yeah. so many chicken I mean, barbecues. As, as I get it, that's half the fun, isn't it? All the disagreements and stuff like that. Isn't that no. what people get into it for? I don't it's know. getting there, but the internet that is the turning drinking. into a tabloid yeah. now. It's just awful. <laughs> yeah. We, we talked about that a little bit on our last episode. It's just, you know, do we really need to talk about this on mm. the internet? Probably not. <laughs> Anyway, well, let's take another quick break and we'll come back and close out with John and uh, we'll be right back. As far back as the mid-1800s, records exist describing the pre-meaning tradition of brethren smoking cigars during and after gatherings. To this day, the practice of smoking cigars remains very much alive in many lodges. This custom is considered a time for brethren to relax, exchange ideas, and enjoy the simplicity and fellowship that is the very essence of our brotherhood. This is what Hireman Solomon Cigars is all about. Our starting principles are to bring Masonic brethren together in the harmony of a good cigar. Pull up a chair, sit back, light up any of our premium cigars, and enjoy the history. Hireman Solomon Cigars can be found at fine cigar retailers. For a complete list, visit HiremanSolomonCigars.com or check them out on social media to find out when they'll be at a live event near you. Hireman Solomon Cigars is pleased to be the official cigar of the Masonic Light Podcast. And we're back with uh, Brother John Dickey. Not brother, sorry. My, uh, sounds like a brother. He probably knows more about the fraternity than I do. Um, <laughs> Professor John Dickey. Uh, so, John, take us uh, on to a little bit into American Freemasonry. Um, yeah. Take us across the pond. Well, you know, Freemasonry is, is the most, uh, the land where Freemasonry is really found its home, its second home. You know, it, extraordinary astonishing success, particularly in that long golden age 
that I took really about a century from the the Civil War onwards, when it became so fundamental to American life, uh, you know, um, and 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 spawned all kinds of imitators, the whole world of uh, American fraternalism, which is an amazing phenomenon. You know, it's one of the crazy and fascinating things about. American society for people looking from the outside, its ability to generate, you know, organizations and 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 its charitable giving and its, you know, all that sort of area between the state, between the government and the family that they refer to as civil society organizations. And it's one of the really fascinating things about American Freemasonry is right, is the motor of that. It's right at the heart of that. Uh, and that's a really, really important story to tell. But like, um, You know, so Freemasonry says so much about America, I think. You know, that's why Washington picked it as his, you know, kind of ceremonial language. When when George Washington wanted to speak in a gravelly voice to posterity, he got the Masons involved to, you know, in the, the stone, like the cornerstone layings and so on and so forth, because that was when America was showing itself to the world and, and you know, showing itself, as I said, to posterity in the light of all to- uh, 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 eternity is something great and permanent. And the church couldn't do that function, America being the society is. So, hey, presto, call the Freemasons. Um, and that really set America going. But, of course, you know, Freemasonry, right, like America, bears the scars of slavery and its legacy and so on and so forth. And the whole story of the, you know, Prince Hall Masonry and uh, white free ma- mainstream masonry is really does, it, it's like looking at American society through a kind of Masonic keyhole. And, it, and, and it's fascinating in that way. Uh, for an externally observer like me. No, I think you're exactly right. I think, uh, and I'm, and I'm sure this is probably the case in Freemasonry across the world. It's a, it's a snapshot of the society that they exist in. And certainly America is no different. Um, yeah. The point, the poignancy of it though, yeah. the, the thing that makes, makes it a gripping story for me is that Freemasonry aspires to be better than that. Right. You know, and has the this kind of DNA of enlightenment values within it. And that's what makes it an in, into a, a particularly tragic story in a way, but also a story with elements of hope in it and, and so on and f- so forth, you know. So, you know, that's why... At, both as a historian, if you like, as a writer, I was attracted to the to the kind of power and, of and all of your, that. Your book comes across that way that that it 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 is its own duality that that it's it's got these enlightenment uh, conceptions and and yet we're still oppressing uh, whole segments of population and colonizing and enslaving and all that sort of thing. And and but what you managed to do in the book, I think, is to demonstrate the balance of that. Um, both, you know, on an event by event basis, but also globally, it, it, you can see the, the the sort of the tidal change um, 
but it's you know it, it's it's slow it's yeah. uh, but you present I tried, when, to be fair i tried to give the brits a bit of a hard time as well over you know the so empire he, and everything like that you know you really want to pick on somebody pick the australians they because they yeah. can't even play back <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, Jack, it sounds like the parade has arrived at your house. Oh, can you hear it? Okay. Sorry. I heard drumming in the background. They're coming for you. <laughs> they are. They are. It's the best. They're all, they're all wearing aprons, too. It's great. Mm. Well, if, uh, if, if my sound is being bad, I'll, uh, I'll mute myself. No, you're sure. fine. You're fine. It's I'm fine. sure everybody will enjoy it if I mute myself. Yeah. So. Well, John, why don't you tell our listeners, you, you alluded to a website earlier. Uh, why don't you uh, share yeah. with our listeners where they might find more about you and your work? And um... Sure. Um, the website is www.johndickey.net. Uh, and my name is spelled D-I-C-K-I-E. Uh, and that's got information about all my books, the various TV programs I've made, um, and reviews of the craft. <laughs> Uh, more material about it, links to media interviews, other funny stuff. Um, you know, uh, you, you can kind of links try before you buy. Links to podcasts? Do you have links to podcasts on there? Yeah, I have links to podcasts. And if you supply me uh, a link, I'll I'll shove it up there as well. Uh, <laughs> uh, if you, you can say, do, shove it before you Do you say that in America? I'm, 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 you know. Yeah, you're good. You're good. Okay. I can't see it. We don't want another whole butt um, <laughs> in, introduced into we the... We don't want uh, another whole butt, that's for sure. <laughs> for sure. If, uh, if you get an alert from your bank, I just bought the book on Kindle, Amazon, so... Superb. <laughs> yeah, my my agent is ringing me now to congratulate yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> Good, I was going to loan it to you, but I won't now. Well, I, felt, I felt bad when Larry didn't pay for it either i mean yeah it's it's a compliment that like you share a book but oh, yeah. I mean, you know, the professor gotta eat you also mentioned <laughs> you also mentioned a youtube channel can that be found just by looking up yeah that? yeah i think if you if i, I mean th there's uh, various things on the youtube channel um but uh, most of them the, the, I, i'm also on twitter um uh, john dickey uh you'll find me i'm uh, but yeah, the YouTube channel, I did a series under, you know, lockdown conditions when all I could do to publicize the book was wander the streets of London. I made a series of uh, little films about curious and interesting places in London that are in Masonic history. And some of them are really weird and really striking, um, including uh, an electrical gadget shop on the Edgware Road, number 25 Edgware Road which is responsible for starting the whole history of paranoia about Freemasonry and conspiracy theories. It's where the first modern conspiracy theory was born. Wow. Nice. That's great. You, you didn't visit Jack the Ripper's house, I hope. Um, there is a Masonic conspiracy about Jack the Ripper. Very yeah. important one. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Very important one, yeah. Uh, which is briefly mentioned because That's the right. guy set in motion a whole load. You know the film, uh, what's it called? Um, From Hell. It's yeah. based on this really spooky graphic novel, really good graphic novel, uh, which in turn is based on this paranoid conspiracy theorist journalist's book. 
that basically Jack the Ripper was a Freemason and the Masons covered his tracks, which is makes perfect sense because why else would we not know who he is? That's yeah. right. <laughs> exactly. except, except for the fact that we're really terrible at keeping secrets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's Wherever two or three true. Yeah. Right. That is absolutely true. Well, right. John, thank you so much for being with us this evening. It's been uh, quite a joy to have you here, having read your book during my vacation this year. Uh, it, I, I love any book that causes me to think more and to want to engage in conversations about topics. And your stories in your book did that um, easily. And um, Pete will uh, join the club of those of us who have read it very soon, I'm sure. So. <laughs> But That's thank great. You I hope you got a, I hope you got a few laughs out of it as well. I, I, I sure did. And, and and thank <laughs> you for being accessible, John. Uh, uh, it's not always the case that that people are uh, willing to stay up. I know you're in the UK right now, so it's uh, yeah. it's getting awfully late for you. Um, but we thank you very much for being accessible and and being a great guest. Uh, we, My we, great pleasure. It's been huge fun. Hello, brethren. Dutchy Duck is back with an update from my lodge, the Brogan Pla number 377. I was recently sitting on my porch and was thinking about just how colorful our Pennsylvania Dutch language is. Our mother tongue is full of great idioms. Now, I take it that all of you know what an idiom is. And no, not an idiot, an idiom. We all know our fair share of idiots. The Pennsylvania Dutch language is a language of the working people. For generations we have been engaged in agriculture and our language greatly reflects the down-to-earth wisdom of a people that are not afraid to get their hands dirty and know the meaning of an honest day's work. So this month I decided to share with all of you a few sayings from our language and to try to give examples of them at play in our Masonic journeys. Here we go. Idiom number one. Good gadu is besser as good gezahlt. Well done is better than well said. Now we all know that some of our brethren talk a good game. I'll sign up to help. I'll take such and such a part. And then they don't show up. Or they show up and don't know their lines for the degree. Ay ay ay, that burns me up. Do it right or don't do it at all, gal. <laughs> Idiom number two. Midas provira fint ma nixas. Without trying, one learns nothing. Now this idiom is a good one. We have all been there. Whether it was learning a part for a degree, or agreeing to chair a committee, or just helping out with the pancake breakfast. Until we actually put ourselves into action, we learn nothing. We must act, not just think about it. Through our actions, and most importantly our mistakes, do we truly learn. Idiom number three. Was manetim kophat, hot ma in the fees. What is not in the head must be in the feet. <laughs> now, at first, you might think that this idiom is making fun of people who aren't educated, but I don't see it that way. When we look at our fraternity, we are comprised of men from all walks of life. We must embrace and lift up our various gifts that the Supreme Architect of the Universe has bestowed upon us. Yes, some of us are able to memorize paragraphs and paragraphs of ritual, but that alone will not keep a lodge alive. We also need to recognize those brethren who quote-unquote clean out the manure. And you know exactly who I mean. 
the brethren that mow the lodge's grass or clean the snow from the sidewalks, the brethren that are always there in the kitchen helping with a meal or picking up a homebond brother and bringing him to lodge. A lodge that celebrates all of our gifts is a lodge that not only survives, but grows. Last but not least, idiom number four. Ein kleiner Boss macht viel Sache recht. A little kiss makes many things right. For those of us brethren that are married, don't forget to show your honey some appreciation for supporting you in all of your Masonic endeavors. I never forget to kiss my wife before I leave for a meeting, and I always kiss her when I get home, no matter how late it is and whether she wants me to or not. <laughs> Hopefully one of these idioms spoke to you. Our language has many, many more that maybe I'll share with all of you in the future. But till next time, work hard, stay plumb, and on the lights when you leave the room. To learn more about the Pennsylvania Dutch language, culture, and history, please visit my website, padutch101.com, or my YouTube channel. Just search Doug Maidenford. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Um, great episode so far with, brother, or with uh, Professor John Dickey. <laughs> and uh, I think we're going to wrap this show up because I have no idea what I'm saying. So what do you guys uh, got coming up? Uh, Tim. Well, um, the day after this show drops on the 28th, I will be joining uh, Robert Burns Lodge for their banquet. Uh, I got in, must have done a halfway decent job. I got invited to their banquet. Um, Eureka West Shore Lodge's banquet will be coming up just prior to this dropping. So I'm sure we had a great time. Um, Next, uh, the Friday after this, uh, Lucius Akaratas AMD Council will be meeting, um, having a great time. It's one of my favorite Masonic groups. Um, and then on the 4th of October, uh, the stated meeting of Eureka West Shore Lodge uh, for October, we'll be recognizing 25-year service award recipients. And I'm not sure what else, but uh, lots of good things uh, going on. So um that is that and jack how about you i get nothing you got nothing uh, I, I my my bubble burst uh when lodge in the wood was over i'm 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 on uh sabbatical i'm on masonic life support right now <laughs> all right okay josh how about you uh not the the usual uh trying to be worshipful master stuff and uh <laughs> Keeping keeping Larry in line, he you know he, he keeps putting off this merger committee stuff, but yeah, he's such a slacker. Yeah. yeah. Pete, what about you? So um, obviously, the Pennsylvania Grotto Association. Uh, when that's done, hopefully, I can just pass the gavel and I'm done with that business for a while. Um, I got a piece of mail the other day. I'm wondering if Larry got one too. Um, dear brother Pete. You are invited to participate in our fall reunion on November 20th. So the Valley of Reading, um, the fall reunion is going to be Saturday, November 20th. And apparently brother Herb Swisher, 33rd degree, has decided that I should be in the 6th, 16th, and 32nd degrees. Wow. Well, they're desperate. <laughs> the, the good news, the good news is... Um, Five lines, zero lines, and four lines. So I think I can handle it. 
I'm on the sixth grade, sixteenth and seventeenth, and I'm only going to do the seventeenth. So I got the same thing. All right. Did we miss anybody, Larry? We, are you Larry, the last one? We didn't do Larry. You know anything, Larry? Larry. Yeah, we're going to finish up with Larry, and then uh, and then we'll dub the chickens. Oh, Go, Larry. Yeah. Uh, what am I? Uh, one of the things I wanted to say, I, I forgot to say it earlier. I did attend the Richard Dreyfus Civics Lecture. Did any of you? Oh, did you? That was. He was fantastic, and he. I hope that they make that video available for Masonic Lodges and for anybody to be able to see because it did you did, did you book him for the show? Uh, it was, no, you had actually, one job. Probably, you had one job. Is this like Close Encounters of Third Kind, Richard Dreyfus? Yeah. Yes, that Richard the actor. Yeah, Dawes. He's a third second degree. Yeah, uh, he's yeah. he's everything. I mean. And, he is. Uh, he's not a. Uh, he's not a liberal. He's not a conservative. He's, he's in the middle. Of that. That's why I haven't seen him in anything in fifteen years. Well, that's a- oh my god! About him though is he has appeared on Fox. So take that for. He can't be a liberal if he appeared on Fox, right? <laughs> They have uh, Dr. I don't even know where to the go guys, with that. All right. Guys, yeah. Cue the chickens. Get, his, his oh my get, us, get us out of here. I got to call. Yeah. Josh, dump the chickens. Larry, get us out of here. Yeah. <laughs> Step chickens. Okay. Hey, special thanks for uh, 665 for their beautiful broad, uh, making our beautiful studio. Well, you don't know what I mean. I've said it enough. But special thanks to uh, Josh Leiter, uh, yeah, Josh Lamperton, our news director, and Tim Dedman, our marketing director, Michelle Snyder, and uh, Douglas Maddenford. We'll see Doug on Sunday, by the way. Uh, I are, are we going to hear from any of like, the strangers? Are we going to hear from any of the strangers, the, like like um, a certain Moyer, if you will? Yeah, um, he said he was going to call in. That's why my lodge. Check in. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I heard from him. He's getting ah. with me. He was up in he was up in for weeks. So, he was where? He was at hunting camp up in the North Woods for weeks at a time. Just in high heels for weeks. I didn't yeah, know he where was that. up there for two or three weeks at the shop. He's going back up again for three more weeks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, so the rumors of him uh, being in rehab are true. All right, so time to say goodbye. It's- Thanks bye, for everybody. listening. This is Larry. Good night. Bye, Good night. everybody. I didn't curse once tonight.